0: Well, good morning everybody. It's a great pleasure and privilege to uh, worship the Lord with you this morning and to share something from God's Word, which I I trust uh, will be of benefit to you. Uh, I'm going to be speaking this morning uh, from Genesis chapter 22, so uh, if you have a Bible, uh, please look up chapter 22 of Genesis. I'm going to be reading from Uh, The translation which I usually use, which is the ESV, the English Standard Version, and uh, I I have a suspicion that the Pew Bible may be a different translation. Uh, Fear not, it's still the same story. (laughs) And uh, nothing that I say in my message will uh, depend on a particular translation. So I hope you'll be able to um, uh, read along with me, uh, even though uh, you may be looking at a different English translation of the inspired text. So, Genesis chapter 22, and I'm going to be reading the uh, first 19 verses of a very familiar story that we've already uh, heard uh, this morning, mention of in the uh, New Testament reading and in the children's message. So, Genesis uh, 22, and this is God's holy word. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here am I. He said, and he said, "'Here am I, my son.' He said, "'Behold the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for a burnt offering?' Abraham said, "'God will provide for himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son.' So they went both of them together. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. So Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord it shall be provided. And the angel of the Lord called to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you. And I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned to his young man, and they arose and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham lived at Beersheba. This is the word of the Lord. Please pray with me for a moment. Father, we thank you for your word to us, this uh, powerful uh, account that speaks to us in so many different ways. We pray that you might bless us by the reading and the opening up of your word this morning. Uh, help me to uh, speak faithfully and clearly of the truths that you have set down here And may our hearts be encouraged and challenged uh, as you see fit according to our need. And may Christ be lifted up and glorified, we pray. Amen. When was the last time that you experienced déjà vu? Déjà vu, that unsettling feeling that you've been here before, that you've seen this before, that you've done this before. Some people experience déjà vu on a regular basis. Perhaps they resonate with the words of the great philosopher Yogi Berra. It's déjà vu all over again. Why is this feeling of déjà vu so strange and unsettling to us? Perhaps it's partly because we think history doesn't repeat itself. Every event has to be unique. The future has to be completely new. Perhaps also it's partly because we think that we are the ones in charge of our lives. If history is repeating itself, including the events of our lives, then maybe someone else is in control of our lives. That would be so unnatural that we might think something supernatural is at work. Well, déjà vu is only a feeling, of course, but the reality is that history does repeat itself, and in ways that can only be described as supernatural. That's not my personal opinion, that's not my theory, that's actually what the Bible implies. Let me explain what I mean. In Luke's Gospel, in chapter 24, we read that the resurrected Lord Jesus met His two disciples on the road to Emmaus. And these two disciples were downcast because they thought that the Messiah had failed. But before they even realized who he was, Jesus gently rebuked them with these words, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And then Luke tells us, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Just imagine what that would have been like, a Bible study led by Jesus himself, in which he explained how all of the Old Testament pointed forward to him. Well, Luke doesn't give us the details of uh, what Jesus said, but We have a pretty pretty good idea of what it would have included, because the Old Old Testament points forward to Jesus in two basic ways. First, there are the remarkable prophecies which stretch from Genesis all the way to Malachi, that God would send His Messiah to redeem His people, that this Messiah would be a prophet like Moses and a king like David. He would be born in Bethlehem. He would be born of a virgin. He would heal the sick. He would comfort the oppressed. He would even come back from the dead. Secondly, however, there are also the remarkable pictures of Jesus in the Old Testament. Now, I don't mean pictures in the literal sense, of course, like images. Rather, I mean that many of the people and events and rituals of the Old Testament, although they had meaning in themselves, were intended by God to have a deeper meaning, to foreshadow and symbolize the person and the work of the coming Messiah, Jesus. So, for example, the Passover, which commemorated God passing over the firstborn sons of the Israelites in Egypt, foreshadowed God passing over His covenant people and not exercising judgment upon us for our sins. In particular, the Passover lamb pointed forward to Christ's sacrifice. Only those who have been marked by his blood will live. And the entire Exodus event, where Moses led Israel out of captivity captivity in Egypt, symbolizes Jesus leading us out of captivity to sin and death. These are just a few examples of how the Old Testament gives us pictures that point us forward to Jesus as our Redeemer. But this morning, I want us to focus on three particular pictures of Jesus in the book of Genesis, the very first book of the Old Testament. Three pictures that center on the character of Isaac, the son of Abraham. And what we will see is that the life of Isaac parallels that of Jesus in some remarkable ways that will help us to better understand and appreciate the gospel. So what are these three pictures? Well, the first picture is that of the promised son, the promised son. Both Isaac and Jesus were sons who fulfilled very special promises from God, although the second promise was immeasurably greater than the first. If you remember the story In in Genesis, up to this point, up to chapter 22, Abraham's wife, Sarah, was barren, and for whatever reason, she had been unable to have children. uh, Today, of course, there is uh, much more hope for women in that situation with the various medical technologies that we now have available, but in her day, there was very little hope, humanly speaking. And what made it even worse was that in her culture, children were viewed as a sign of God's blessing, and so barrenness was considered to be a curse. And so this would have been a very desperate and depressing situation for Sarah and her husband. But God is a merciful God. He appeared to Abraham and promised him that Sarah would certainly bear a son, even though she was well past the normal years of childbearing. Her barrenness would come to an end. She would no longer be seen as being under God's curse. She would one day laugh with joy. So Isaac was a son of promise, promised in response to physical barrenness. And Jesus was also a son of promise. But he was promised as a response to spiritual barrenness. The Old Testament tells the story of how God's people became spiritually barren as they turned away from him, failing to bear the fruit of obedience and love for God. And so they came under his curse but God is a merciful God. He promised that one day that spiritual barrenness would come to an end. The prophet Isaiah spoke about that future day in these words. Isaiah chapter 54. Sing, O barren one who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than... Than the children of him who is married, says the Lord. Now, what did Isaiah mean by this? It doesn't sound on the face of it like he's talking about spiritual barrenness, but the Apostle Paul in the New Testament confirms that he is when he quotes that very verse from Isaiah in his letter to the Galatians and he follows it with these words Now, you brothers, like Isaac, are children of God of promise. Here is the astounding implication. Not only was Jesus a Son of promise, but so are we. So are we. Being united with Christ, brought into the household of God, we have become the adopted brothers and sisters of Jesus. We are part of the fulfillment of God's promise to produce spiritual children from a barren sinful nation and a barren sinful world. God had said that through Isaac, through that promised son, he would bless Abraham with a multitude of descendants to be God's own people, a great nation, Israel. But that multitude of physical descendants would ultimately pale into significance compared with a multitude of spiritual descendants that Abraham would have through the promised son, Jesus. Paul tells us that Christians are the children of Abraham. Why? Because like our spiritual father, Abraham, we have faith and we live by faith. You see, the children of Abraham are the children of God. And God wants to have a big family. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 10 tells us that Christ, by His death, is bringing many sons to glory. But the book of Revelation expresses this picture even more vividly. Revelation chapter 7 verses 9 and 10. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number, from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, crying out with a loud voice, Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. A great multitude that no one could number. A countless multitude of spiritual descendants through that promised Son, Jesus. Well, if we had more time, we could perhaps reflect on the fact that both of these promised sons had miraculous births. In fact, didn't we confess that a few minutes ago in the Apostles' Creed? The second miraculous birth, even more amazing than the first. But we need to move on. So that first picture, that first picture is that of the promised Son. The second is that of the sacrificed Son. The sacrificed Son. And here we'll be drawing directly from our reading in Genesis 22. As this chapter of Genesis opens, some years have passed since the birth of Isaac, and he has probably had an uneventful childhood. No doubt Abraham is looking forward to the day when Isaac finds a good wife and fathers his own family as the first installment of the fulfillment of God's promise to give Abraham countless descendants. But then, out of the blue, God commands something absolutely horrendous. Verse 2, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering. Can you imagine what that would have been like for Abraham? God gives a command that is not only personally heartbreaking, but also seems to be contrary to, everything that we know about God. Imagine God appeared to you and said, divorce your wife or husband and leave them destitute. Or throw your children out of the home and disown them. Or take your only son whom you love and kill him for me. It is a terrible Command. A father is required to sacrifice his own son. But note that three times, three times in this account, God calls Isaac Abraham's only son. Take your son, your only son. Is that a mistake? Had God forgotten about Ishmael? Well, no, of course not. For one thing, Ishmael had pretty much been disowned by Abraham to placate Sarah. But more than that, Isaac was Abraham's only son as far as God's promises were concerned. Isaac was the only son of the promise. The promise that God would raise up a mighty nation, a people for himself, and that through them and through one descendant in particular, he would in time bless all the nations of the earth. Isaac was the only son of Abraham according to God's promises. But now that same God is commanding Abraham to sacrifice his only son, the son of the promise, as a burnt offering on a bleak mountainside. What is going on? The promised son is going to become the sacrificed Son. What on earth is God thinking? Well, once again, in the greater light of the New Testament, we can see that this mysterious picture is just a dim picture of an even more mysterious incident some 2,000 years later, which involved another sacrificed Son, Jesus Christ. God had asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, whom he loved. But God wasn't asking that father to make a sacrifice that God wouldn't be willing to make himself. Two thousand years after Isaac, God himself would offer up as a sacrifice his only son, whom he loved. The Apostle John writes in his gospel those famous words, probably the most famous words in the Bible. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. And the Apostle Paul writes in Romans 8 that God did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all. I'm sure that many of us can sympathize with the pain that Abraham must have felt in being asked to give up his only son, whom he loved. But surely, surely the love of God the Father for God the Son, a love that existed perfectly and eternally within the Trinity, a love that defines all other loves, that love must be infinitely greater than the love of an earthly father for his son. And what a greater mystery we find in this second sacrifice as well. You see, Abraham's sacrifice would have put an end to the promises that God had given him. Isaac was necessary for the fulfillment of God's promises. And yet Jesus was necessary for the fulfillment of even greater promises. God had promised through his prophets to save his people from their sins by sending his anointed one the Messiah. And this Messiah would bring blessings of perfect peace and justice, not only to Israel, but to the whole world, fulfilling God's covenant with Abraham. And yet God arranges for that Messiah, that anointed one, to die tragically and shamefully. His life would be cut short by a wicked act of human injustice. Jesus' disciples must have experienced the same confusion as Abraham did when he heard about this crazy plan, this inexplicable turn of events, the cruel sacrifice of the promised one. Peter spoke for all the disciples, I'm sure, when he said, Far be it from you, Lord. This shall never happen to you. It could never happen. This sacrifice seemed completely at odds with God's promises, and God's promises can never fail. Again, the parallels between these two lives, separated by thousands of years, is remarkable. Two fathers prepared to sacrifice their only sons, whom they love. Two sacrifices, which seem to contradict and undermine God's promises of blessing for the world. However, it is at this very point that those parallel lines begin to diverge. Although Abraham is commanded to sacrifice his only son, that dreadful event is rendered unnecessary because of God's gracious provision. The promised son, Isaac, rather than truly becoming the sacrificed son, instead becomes the substituted son. The substituted son. And this is the third picture that I want us to consider. Let's pick up the story again in Genesis 22, this time at verse 10. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. And he said, Here I am. He said, Do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. And so Abraham called the name of that place, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, it shall be provided. Instead of his son. Instead of his son. Isaac was a substituted son. He was the one who was to be sacrificed. But at the last minute, God intervened and provided a substitute for Isaac, a ram, trapped in a bush. God had commanded the sacrifice, and Abraham was morally bound to obey. When God commands something, you do it. The sacrifice was a terrible one, but God provided a way out. Not by abandoning the sacrifice, but by providing a substitute. A ram for Isaac. A substitute instead of his son. Jesus was also a substituted son. But unlike Isaac, Jesus was the substitute rather than the one substituted. Jesus was the substitute provided by God to die instead of someone else. Who was that someone else? It was me, and it was you. Just as God required the life of Isaac, so He requires the life of each one of us. And the Bible makes crystal clear why that is. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 3, 23. All of us have rebelled against God and gone our own way. And that kind of rebellion, that kind of blasphemy against a holy God deserves nothing less than the death penalty. For the wages of sin is death, Paul writes. But the incredible truth is that like an innocent ram, the Lord Jesus who was without sin, died in our place. He was our substitute. He was both the sacrificial son and the substituted son. Amazingly, the prophet Isaiah predicted it hundreds of years before Jesus was born when he spoke about a suffering servant that was to come, Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and by his wounds we are healed. So then, in the life of Isaac, we see a picture, an Old Testament preview of what theologians call substitutionary atonement, the innocent dying so that the guilty might live. The sinless one sacrificed in the place of the sinful one. But note this. Just as Abraham had to take hold of that ram in order to make that substitution effective, so each one of us must take hold of Jesus Christ with hands of faith to ensure that his substitutionary death will be effective for us. We must take hold of Christ, as He is offered to us in the Gospel, so that we may be saved and live. If you have never done that before, I exhort you to make today the day that you lay hold of Christ. There is no other way to find forgiveness for your sins and to be reconciled to God. Lay hold of Christ. I want to finish with two points of application, trying to bring this into our lives in a way that's going to be most relevant for us and perhaps some of the anxieties that we have at this time. What is it that we should draw from these pictures of Jesus? In the 15th chapter of his letter to the Romans, the Apostle Paul said this, to his Christian readers, his Christian audience. Romans 15, verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Why did God put these previews of Jesus into the Old Testament? Why did God paint these pictures of Jesus in human history so that we might better understand the gospel, so that we might better understand who Jesus is and what he has done for us, so that we might better understand just how wonderful is God's plan of salvation for us that he put in place before the beginning of time, so that we might have hope. Hope of peace with God and eternal life. That is the first point to draw from all this. It points us again to the gospel, the gospel of hope. But there's a second point of application here. Do you think that these remarkable parallels between the life of Isaac and the life of Jesus are just historical coincidences that make for a good sermon illustration? Are they nothing more than just a big case of deja vu? I'm sure that you don't think that. I'm sure that you think that all this was planned by God. You see, we believe in a God who is sovereign, a God who is sovereign over human history. We believe in a God who is, in fact, the author of history. History is God's canvas. And he is the master artist, working out his purposes for his glory and for our salvation. Our God can send prophets to make predictions of events hundreds of years in advance, and then he ensures that they happen, because his very word is at stake. Our God can take two lives separated by 2,000 years, Isaac and Jesus, and can make one foreshadow the other in striking ways. And he can do it in a way that includes free human choices, even sinful human choices, to bring about his perfectly good and wise plans. Just think of all the events that God had to coordinate in order to ensure that Jesus perfectly fulfilled all the types and prophecies of the Old Testament. Think of all the thousands of individual human choices and actions that were involved in the weeks leading up to Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. The actions of the disciples, of Judas, the Jewish leaders who conspired against Jesus, the Romans who executed him, and yet it was God who was ultimately in control. The Apostle Peter came to realize this later on when he prayed this prayer in Acts chapter 4. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. These pictures of Jesus that God has painted on the canvas of history, which underscore the sovereignty of God, should give us great encouragement in a world that so often seems chaotic and out of control. Perhaps we look at events across our nation, across the world, and we ask is God really in control? Perhaps we look at trials in our own lives and we ask, is God really in control? Yes. Yes, He is. And He always has been. Just as in the days of Abraham, God is sovereignly working out His purposes for His own glory and for our salvation. But often it's not until the final chapter, that we understand the story. Let's pray. Our Father, we praise You that You are both a sovereign God who is in control of history and a merciful God who looks at us sinful rebels against Your law and has compassion upon us, and sends a substitutionary sacrifice. Not just anyone, but your own precious Son, as a perfect sacrifice to pay the penalty for our sins. Father, forgive us for not trusting you. Forgive us for not trusting that you are in control. Forgive us for not fully trusting the Christ who is presented to us in the gospel. Father, my prayer is that if there are any here who have not trusted Christ, that you would open there our hearts and eyes and minds to see him as he truly is, and to put their trust in him. I pray for all of us that you would deepen our faith in you and in your purposes and in your sovereign grace in our lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.